As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Um, apologies if it's been not the greatest sound quality the last couple of weeks. I had some issue with my microphone. I have a new one. Hopefully today I sound crystal clear. Bruce, a little bit later, we're going to be joined by our colleague Seth Emerson, who covers Georgia, for a bit of a unique perspective on what it was like to cover the story that and or to to be the competitor of an outlet that broke that investigation about Georgia and its handling of sexual assault cases only to find out that the reporter made some serious errors and actually got fired. Of course, we want to also talk to him about Georgia's quest to three-peat. But first, Bruce, we saw each other in person in Vegas last week. Uh, We hit the second day of Mountain West Media Day and then Pac-12 Media Day, which is one day event. Um, obviously a lot of, I wrote my 18,000th story about the media rights deal, but, uh, that is a star studded league this year. And it was a little surreal. First of all, they held it in a Vegas, like, you know, these Vegas hotels where you just go straight into the casino. So it was a little surreal for me to see the reigning Heisman trophy winner, you know, walking straight through a casino to get to the interviews. Um, I feel like after all the years of this is a league that gets criticized all the time for on and off field, they haven't made the playoffs since 2016. But as I look around the country this season, it might be the most entertaining league. Yeah. And I think it has the most honestly star power because all their star quarterbacks came back. You, yeah. uh, you mentioned Caleb Williams, you have Bo Nix, you have Michael Penix Jr. You have Cam Rising, who is also there. That's all you know, that at the top of the food chain is really, really strong. And I think the one of the things we talk to a lot of coaches around the league was all right, is it almost too deep where you know maybe they're gonna knock each other off and no one's gonna get out of there with only one loss? Because it's not like you have, you know, 
where you have a Georgia and Alabama and then, yeah, there's other really good teams, but there, there is a significant talent gap or certainly Ohio state and Michigan compared to a lot of the rest of the big 10 with the PAC 12, you know, as, as explosive as Caleb's offense is the defensive side of the ball, we know needs major work. Um, you know, Washington also has to get much better on defense than they were last year. Oregon was good. Can they take a big step? We know what Utah is because I feel like that's Utah every year. But it's a really, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to see, like you said, to see all that star power that they had. I think this, you know, and this is going to be the last year of the two LA schools, UCLA and USC are moving to the Big Ten, as everyone knows. Um, it's the last go around. I would ask you this from anything, you, the conversations you had with players and coaches alike um, over the, you know, Thursday, Friday, is there anything you're, you had a big takeaway from being in Vegas about the league? Well, I think that it's always, you know, USC, both because of the brand power and because of Caleb Williams is always, you know, they were picked to win the league. It's very easy to get kind of caught up in them. You know, Michael Penix has become such a huge name. It's very easy to get caught up in Washington, et cetera. You mentioned Cam Rising. Cam Rising, I feel like, has been at Utah forever. Um, I spent a little time around him. And you realize, like, well, now, wait a minute. Utah is the two-time defending champion in this conference. I think they always get overlooked, but in particular, the last couple years, because they weren't 12-1 and conference championships. You know, they, they were, well, I think, I believe they were both 9-3 and three teams in the regular season. Um, that's probably not going to cut it in that league this year. But I just feel like any discussion about who's going to win the Pac-12 this season, who's going to play in the championship game, has to at least include Utah, if not start with Utah. And one reason is, you know, when, when we were talking about it, and I was talking about with other writers in particular, and I said, who do you think is going to win it? I'm going to say, it's whoever can find a defense. Because last year, these teams were all offense, no defense. Even Utah, by its own standards, was a little bit middle of the pack. But there's a track record there on Kyle, under Kyle Whittingham um, that they should have one of the tougher defenses in the conference. All right. So from the people I talked to in the league, there are six teams that somebody thought, you know, oh, I think this team has a decent chance of winning uh, the conference, which is a lot, right? You go from USC, Washington – Utah, Oregon, UCLA, and Oregon State, who won double digits last year. I want you to give Oregon me... Oregon State is the sneaky, like, when people say, oh, who's going to be this year's TCU? I, I'm a little bit tempted to say could possibly be the Beavers. Why is that? Okay, first of all, they were the only team that was decent in defense in that conference last year. They have a great running attack. And I don't know if DJU is going to be the savior at quarterback or not, but if he's not, if he gets beat out, it might be by a – well, you tell us. You were at practice. Tell us about what you saw from the quarterbacks. I mean, they have three, and that's the, the thing that's going to be interesting because, you know, DJU, obviously everybody knows who he is, and I think the biggest thing with him going forward is you know, tweaking some of his mechanics. I think he's going to get more immersed in the system. I don't think a lot of people don't realize there was another quarterback in that, you know, celebrated Southern California quarterback class that DJU and CJ Stroud and Bryce Young was in. 
you know, another one of those guys was Ben Goldbranson, who led them last year to 10 wins. Um, he's a really smart quarterback. I think he is a guy who um, will end up, you know, being somebody to just like, oh, we know what we have in him. And I think that I think that's reassuring because it's a it's like necessarily a complicated system. But I think what you get, I think people underestimate how challenging it is in this day and age to to uh, do all the things you need to do with the footwork of, of operating under center and everything that goes with that. And I think, you know, that's the challenge that I think DJ has got to really get, get along, you know, get further along with, because as you mentioned, you know, they got Damian Martinez who had a terrific freshman year. The other, the other guy who's definitely in the mix who was impressive when I saw him, Aiden Childs. He's from from Downey here in Southern California. He's a good athlete. He throws it really well. He was a quarterback who got there early. Like Notre Dame came in on him late. He also wanted to, you know, still go to Oregon State. I think as he develops, you know, and obviously he's never done it, and I think there's going to be, a, you know, some learning curve. But physically he's really impressive, and I know they're really high on him. I think they have – that's a really interesting quarterback room. And as we mentioned – Martinez is a beast in the backfield. They have some really dynamic receivers. Silas Bolden, to me, is one of my favorite players in college football. He's he's tiny, but he's super fast. And and look, I think we all, at least on the West Coast, know how good of a coach Jonathan Smith and that staff is. So I kind of like your where you're headed. Um, I think that they are definitely a sleeper, and we need to be talking more about them. I do want to throw out one other wild card in this. Um, Washington state was, it was sneaky good, you know, good last year. They beat Wisconsin early in the year in Madison and Cam Ward's back. Ben Arbuckle is a rising star, a new offensive coordinator who created some buzz, um, in the little off the grid, you know, certainly last year at, at Western Kentucky. And I know from talking to both Cam and, and Jake Dicker, they're really, really excited about what they got there. So I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a fun league because you have, as you said, Oregon State, Washington State. I think Arizona uh, with Delora and what Jed Fish has been able to do there. They have recruited really well. They have a lot of really good young players. They're dangerous. And we've said all that without even mentioning. I know he wasn't there because of health reasons at media days. But but, you know, pretty much everywhere else, people have talked about Colorado because of what Deion Sanders has basically been able to to get people's attention about. I know for all these teams we're talking about, the team everybody's going to be watching the most probably in the first two weeks is Colorado. Also, uh, an interesting storyline, UCLA might be starting a freshman quarterback. A uh, five-star Dante Moore. Um, people say, if you're a betting man, who's going to start the week one for UCLA when they host Coastal Carolina? A lot of people think it'll be the true freshman, which would be very interesting, which, is, which brings us to a story we put up on The Athletic on Monday morning. Every year for the last several years, I don't remember who came up with the concept, but credit to that person. We do a Heisman fantasy draft. Um, it was, let's see here, Nicole Auerbach, myself, David Ubbin, Chris Fanini, Ari Wasserman, you, Sam Kahn, and Max Olson. Four rounds. We're picking who we, obviously who we think is most likely to win the Heisman, but you also get points if your guy, your guy finishes you know, in the top 10. Invited to New, There's a bonus for Invited to New York City. And there's a mid-season Heisman leader. Now, Bruce, you won this thing last year, am I correct? Uh, yes, I won it last year, and I won it 
Um, I am trying to make it three out of the last four or three out of the four. So last year you had Caleb, so you won with him. Uh, who else did you have last year that helped get you some points or did it, was it just him? I got to remember. I don't even, you know, it feels like forever ago. Let me see if, if, uh, our editor, Eric single. Well, you can look that while you look that up, I'm just going to point out that, you know, as we're talking about all this star power in the pac 12, uh, Caleb Williams, who Nicole got with the number one pick, Michael Panix, who went to Vanini and somehow Bo Nix was available for me. Uh, cause I had the second pick, which means I didn't come back until number 15. He was available for me. And then the guy we just talked about, after we did the four rounds, then we each took a flyer, like a free agent flyer, uh, somebody who would be very unlikely to win the Heisman. And mine was Dante Moore. Uh, I see somebody already took Travis Hunter in the fourth round, Colorado. Um, there's a lot of Pac-12 in this list. Of course, there's also a lot of Clemson, Ohio State, Michigan, et cetera. I took Jaden Daniels as my number two overall pick just because – you know, my strategy is not so much who are the best players, like who, if you were listing them in terms of talent, as who is the most likely to be a very good player on a team that makes the playoff. Because that's really the, um, like, I don't have much faith in Washington to make the playoff. Therefore, I wasn't looking to take Michael Penix. Uh, was there a pick that went in these four rounds where you're like, that was the one I wanted to have? Now, it could be, like, I was yes. picking six this year, so there's, it's a little further down, but so in the snake in the snake draft, right? So I had the second overall pick. So when once it went all the way back through the whole second round, and we began the third round, I was ready to pounce on Brock Bowers, and Nicole got him one pick before me. I know that sounds crazy to think a tight end could win the Heisman, but he is the most recognizable player at this point on the team that's going to be going for the three-peat. And I think we all recognize he's an exceptionally unique tight end who is um, who, who, they, who they use basically as a receiver. He's their most effective pass catcher. He's run the ball before, like, and he has name recognition. So I wasn't going to take him in the first or second round, but I would have gladly taken him top of the third. Just to hope to get he gets – five points or something and comes in fifth you're saying yeah i don't know that he would win it but he could definitely it's like i took sets and i got points last year because i took sets and bennett which seemed crazy at the time but it was the same exact thinking starting quarterback of a team that you know was was expected to make the playoff i didn't think he'd have the kind of year he did but you know name recognition starting quarterback and lo and behold he did make it to new york i'm a little i got some issues to pick with our friend ari wasserman I just feel like he gets so caught up in the five-star thing. Quinn Ewers was his first-round pick. Uh, what? Who Who that watched Quinn Ewers last year would say, this guy's going to win the Heisman next year. And then in the third round, he took Jalen Milrow, who you're a betting man. Is Jalen Milrow going to be Alabama's starting quarterback this year? All right. Like, not to – I don't want to – I'm going to defend Ari. Um, I like this pick of Sam Hartman in the second round. Yeah, that's a good one. Um. You know, so uh, I don't know the way I the way I looked at this was you have three round your first two or three picks you are trying to get points. You know, it's like I once I got to six, I'm like, ooh, it's like let me see who I think could finish in the top three, and I went with a guy who I think might be the best overall player in college football. And that's Marvin Harrison Jr. We've seen a wide receiver win the Heisman in recent years. 
Um, we've seen him shine on a big stage. I mean, he, he put up a hundred yards and two touchdowns against Georgia in less than three quarters before he got knocked out of the game. Um, I liked, I was surprised JJ McCarthy quarterback at Michigan was still around. Like you, you know, your logic was Jalen, Jaden Daniels was going to be a playoff quarterback and look, Michigan looks like they could be a playoff team this year. And I was like, all right, in the second round, I'll take them. Um, you know, and then when I was looking at it, some of the guys going in the third round, I was like, man, I like, I think Dylan Gabriel's pretty talented and I think he will put up big numbers in that offense. They're in the top 15. I could see Dylan Gabriel. I'm, I don't know if he'd lead the nation in passing, but it wouldn't shock me if he did. Yeah, I agree with you on JJ McCarthy. And I just think in particular, I like, you, there's a premium, there's a, there's a draft boost on your stock for Ohio State and Michigan because they just get so much outsized attention. They're always in that big noon game. Um, that's why for my – once you get to the fourth round, you're just kind of throwing darts and hoping for the best. As we know, we've seen some defensive players get to New York that they're usually from Ohio State or Michigan. So for my fourth rounder, I went with JT Tui Malohau, who had that just game record performance against Penn State last year. If he could end up being this year's Chase Young or Aiden Hutchinson, maybe I get some. I don't think he wins it, but maybe I get some points that way. I went with Garrett Nussmeyer from LSU. He is really, really talented. We saw some of that talent against George in the SEC title game. And it was like whether Jaden Daniels, if he stumbles or if he gets hurt, like you said, if they're a playoff team, I think he – I would argue he's the most talented backup quarterback in the country. I don't think there's a big gap between him and Daniels. I'm surprised he's still there. Yeah. I mean, the re part of the reason why is I think they have a lot of connections to, to uh, Louisiana knowing the Nussmeyers a little bit. And I think he's, he likes it there, you know? And so I think that he expects he'll be the guy next year and who knows, maybe if you never know what happens where, could end up being the starter this year. So, as you said, they're, I think they're a playoff caliber team. Um, and we'll see, you know, if, if, if Jaden takes the next step or you never know. I thought the Heisman draft is a cool way to start thinking about, like, I think we're all ready to start turning our attention to the field. The season is right around the corner. Training camp's about to start. So I put out a call on Twitter for questions of that regard. Um, so we're going to get to those mailbag questions in a little bit. But first, we want to welcome our guest, the guy who knows all things Georgia, Seth Emerson. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second. But now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional 
on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. We're pleased to be joined now by our colleague, Seth Emerson, who knows all things Georgia football and has had an unusual offseason recently. We talked last week, Bruce, when David Oven was on here about the fairly shocking uh, revelation that the AJC had to fire the Atlanta journal constitution had to fire the reporter who had been doing these investigative stories on Georgia. It started with the tragic uh, fatal crash in January after the national championship parade. And obviously Georgia has had a lot of problems with guys speeding, but then came this second story about the way the school handles sexual assault allegations. And the school fought back. They sent this retraction demand. And the result of that, right, was that they ended up having to make some major corrections and and um, and fire the reporter. So, Seth, you're on the Georgia beat. When something like this breaks, I assume the automatic, usually the automatic reaction is, I got to go chase this. I got to go advance right. the story. Yeah. But what was the what, what was it like for you on this one? Um, well, uh you can attest to my state of mind because I think we talked the day after where I was just kind of like, all right, wh- how do, what do we do here? Um, and I think right away I saw some problems with this story. Now going back the past six months with Alan Judd doing most of these stories, there was some good reporting, some good investigative work. Sometimes it seems some better context was needed and people, George, people at Georgia disagreed with the framing of some of these stories some of the stuff that was in George's retraction letter was about the, uh, these stories over the last six months, but ultimately they realized it tied back to the January 15th crash. So, you know, they understood fair game. This last story though, went in another direction. The subject matter is obviously very charged. So when this came out, people at Georgia really started to basically fight back. Um, when I read that story, one detail that jumped out at me, was it presented Adam Anderson, who was leading Georgia in sacks during the 2021 season, um, got accused of rape and never played again after the accusation became public. Um, that it, the AJC story said that with Anderson bringing unwanted attention, I think it said to the program, Kirby Smart suspended him. Well, I knew that was misleading because having reported on that when it happened, I knew that Anderson was suspended from the team three days before any of us in the media actually found out that there was an accusation. Um, Then I turned my attention to the Jamal Jarrett case, which is the other part that was highlighted. Um, And 
I guess to kind of synthesize it down, condense it, I got the police report. I watched the police detective interrogation videos, both with Jamal Jarrett and with the accuser. And my takeaway was certainly different from what was presented in the story. And it, it just, it didn't match the tone of the story. And honestly, like if we had found out about it in real time, we wouldn't have done a story. Um, meanwhile, behind the scenes, UGA is providing answers to our questions. Uh, they are providing a lot of pushback. Um, and I, 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 there, there was a lot going on. Um, Stuart is my boss. You can rein me in. <laughs> but uh, the other thing is that like summer vacations hit, you know, you go to Europe. Uh, I went to Disney World. Um, there was this big meeting that Georgia officials, Kirby Smart, the athletic director, Josh Brooks, um, their associate AD, Doris Griffin, who handles a lot of the, the off-field stuff, um, their legal counsel, and someone from the university's equal employment office, they had with media members, including Alan Judd. Um, Jeff Schultz went in my stead because I was in a long planned trip to Disney World. So as a reporter, you can understand that like, I wasn't crazy about missing it, but you know, it was a choice between divorce and, uh, you know, covering this major story. Um, so they, they held that meeting where they push back on it. And after the meeting ends, they send that retraction letter. And I actually received that retraction letter via text from someone who either didn't know I was on vacation or didn't care. And so I got it while I was in line for funnel cake, um, near a star Wars ride. And I'm, I'm reading over it and I'm like, well, okay, they are going hard at it. Um, and so we wondered what would happen. And long story short, um, last Wednesday, uh, I think was when the news came down that the AJC was issuing two corrections and they were apologizing to the university and uh, firing Alan Judd. I, last detail, and then I'll get off my uh, soliloquy here. But uh, the, the major thing they backed off was this assertion in the story that there were 11 players who were allowed to stay on the team after accusations of some sort of sexual violence. Um, nobody could figure out how they got to 11. Uh, maybe you counted Jamal Jarrett as one of those. Adam Anderson was suspended, never played again. Um, there was another case that they talked about, but they didn't mention the player. He also uh, was, he never played for the team again. Um, and there were a couple other cases uh, where it wasn't like violence towards the women. It was, you know, it wasn't hitting the women. It was like one was false imprisonment. One was like not letting, blocking the door. Another was like kicking the girlfriend's dorm room open. It was so it, it, people want to know, like, what was my number? I'm like, maybe four, but like each of those fairly, you know, mitigating circumstances that doesn't quite fit the framing. So let me ask you, so the other story, and I feel like the more attention on it because of the tragic crash that, you know, happened with excessive speeding was this run they've had there um including some other players earlier you know that, that's been going on for a while and again i use this in the context of henry ruggs you know former alabama star who has this horrific crash going at a ridiculously high speed um and i saw you know pat 40 did a column last week out of sec media days talking about how kirby spent so much time talking about the word complacency and you know juxtaposed into I think the way he framed it was this, it's like to kind of spin this onto the field as well, where it was like, okay, this is a big issue. This is how we try to eradicate and address complacency. Whereas this other issue 
where it seems like again the AJC documented a lot of a lot of inc- incidents um, after the tragedy, and it just seems like well this happens, and we're kind of at a loss of how to do it. And I think you know a lot of people have said well the the biggest thing you could do is take playing time away from people or get rid of them as as a as a threat or as a punishment to say hey this is this is unacceptable here to, to send a stronger message than then clearly the message hasn't gotten through what's your take on that in light of this whole thing we've talked about i've i've written that they have a super speeding problem um there's two instances incidents of actual drag racing one was part of the January 15th crash where also alcohol was involved. Um, another was Jamon Dumas Johnson, like a week before that incident, but it came to light later uh, after the crash. Otherwise the super speeding part is definitely part of it. And the fact that it's continued to happen um, since then uh, they've, I, I've written that I think Kirby smart should issue suspensions for it and they should make them public. Like it shouldn't be internal discipline. Um, this is like, something that's impacting all of us here in Athens. I drive around my kids and my family in Athens and you don't want people speeding and, and doing this. And when we say speeding though, just to clarify, this isn't like 11 miles an hour over this. This is like yeah. plus miles over this. It's, yeah. it's 80s in 45, yeah. you know, insane yeah. amounts of speed. Rate. And he's, and he's not like when they had that meeting with the media, uh, the week before SEC media days, they all said, you know, we've got a problem um, and we're going to address it. They were pushing back on the sexual assault story. Um, and they, you know, they've continued to say, I mean, you know, Kirby maybe have sounded a little defensive at, during his main room speech on SEC media day saying, you know, this is when it happens, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, at this age that they're in, but they are granting behind the scenes that they've got to get a handle on that um, where they probably should be better is more transparent on what suspensions are happening or like sending a message, send a message to the public. Cause like, God forbid, if something else happens, there's another accident. You can't just lean on. Well, we were, you know, we were working on it behind the scenes. You got to have something tangible that the public already knew about. Um, so they're, they're running a little bit of a risk there that they should definitely be more public about what they're doing to, you know, and, and what the public see, the public doesn't see players running steps at Sanford stadium they see announcements that so-and-so is missing games. Seth, let me ask you. So no one in the modern era of college football has three-peated. Uh, we know that they have sent a ton of talent, high-level draft picks to the NFL. Stetson Bennett, who led them to two national titles, is now on the roster of the Rams. Uh, Brock Bowers is still there, certainly. And there's still a bunch of other former four- and five-star guys. When you look at this team, the uh, what you see on the field, what do you think are the question marks that need to be exclamation points for them to actually do something no one's ever been able to really do in the modern era? The on the field, like depth chart roster wise, uh, quarterback Carson Beck uh, has game experience. He played in the national championship when Stetson Bennett was taken out late in the third quarter, he's gotten a lot of other reps, but you never know how a guy's going to do when the lights are on, when the game is in doubt, he hasn't really been put in when the game was in doubt. If you remember back to the 2021 season, 
when JT Daniels, he starts the Clemson game and then he has the oblique injury and he's not going to play week two against UAB. Carson Beck was initially going to be the starter. But at practice that week, Todd Munkin didn't like what he saw. Stetson Bennett got the start. The rest is history. Has Carson Beck gotten that mental part better? And will he be able to turn his considerable considerable physical tools into playing well all the time, not just the first four games of the season, maybe more when they're winning easily, but when there are games that are close. Um, and the other one is defensive line. Uh, you know, they lose Jalen Carter. Um, they lost the three first round picks off the 2021 season. Um, is there finally like an accumulation of, Ooh, you know, they've just lost too much talent on the defensive line. They've still got talent on the defensive line. I mean, they also lost bear Alexander who didn't play significantly last year, but he was going to be, a heavy contributor, even starter this year. He went to the portal. Um, I Georgia, I think, has been like top three nationally in run defense the last four years. If that slips, for instance, when you play Tennessee, the reason Georgia solved Tennessee's offense was because Tennessee couldn't run on Georgia, and they made Tennessee one-dimensional. When they play Tennessee again, is Tennessee able to run the ball better? Are other teams able to run the ball a little bit better? And suddenly Georgia's defense starts giving up more points. Those are the on the field questions. The off the field questions would be kind of the ones you wonder about complacency um, and whether everything we talked about at the start of this segment was a distraction. Ultimately, um, I asked players uh, in Nashville at SEC media days whether they would maybe use it as a kind of a rallying cry. Like, let's show everyone our culture is really good. And they actually didn't bite on that. They said, we just we have to be better about the I think they'd got been given the talking points of, you know, say this, don't don't give them any ammunition, but um, maybe we'll find out later that they did use it as a rallying cry to kind of show everyone our culture is just fine. Remember they did the use the Kirby. I feel like famously they were all like, well, nobody picked us. Nobody picked us right. to do this. Everybody was saying we we're going to go six and six. Yeah. Like, Who the hell was saying you were going to go six. And That's seven? why I asked it. Cause I wondered, because I think they realized this time around, they're not gonna be able to do that. Like they, they did it one year, not gonna be able to do it again. I wondered whether they would use all this outside criticism as of their culture as motivation right now they're saying no but that's also the kind of thing that like in six months if they're hoisting the trophy again in houston they may actually then say yeah actually we, we were motivated by that when i think so there's two programs in my time covering sport that had a chance to three-peat usc in the in the in the reggie bush matt liner era you know lead when they got taken down by vitz young and alabama won in in um, 2011 2012 and their 2013 quest ended on the kick six. Mm -hmm. Both those teams showed cracks during the season on defense in particular, um, whether it was Fresno State, you know, rat, rat, you know, going up and down the field on that USC team, um, Johnny Manziel, you know, shredding uh, uh, Alabama's defense in 2013. But there was like such an aura around those teams that people just kind of shrugged it off. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, they're still the number one team. Of course, they're still going to win it. When I look at Georgia's schedule, I'm like, where is that? If that's going to happen, where is it going to come from? And now I guess, you know, you could say South Carolina, week three, Spencer Rattler, like they ended last season strong. But I just feel like Georgia's in a, still in another ballpark talent-wise from South Carolina. You know, I could see them cruising to the Tennessee game in week 11. Is there a different game that I'm overlooking that you're like, well, if this Georgia team is, for instance – not as good on the defensive line as they should be, or one of the other areas you're pointing to, like, well, this is the trap game on their schedule. 
you'd have to then go to like, is there a team that's better than we're expecting? Um, You know, is South Carolina, like you said, better is Auburn in year one of Hugh freeze better Uh, is Florida in year two with Billy Napier better. Uh, It would have to be something like that. And, you know, even then, like you got to remember Georgia nearly lost to Missouri last year. Um, And, that that in Ohio State were the only two games they had that were close. Uh, so they, they've they've got this knack right now. Um, they they had that clutch gene last year, but they also had Stephen Bennett, who was a big reason for that clutch gene. And and so that kind of gets back to do they lack that? Um, but they still have Kirby Smart, who I, I think you focused in on after the uh, Stewart after the Peach Bowl on uh, on Kirby calling the timeout before the fake punt by Ohio state and how that showed the metamorphosis of Kirby smart as a coach. Maybe I made, maybe I made that connection. Um, But like in that same building, he didn't call off the fake punt for Justin Fields in 2018 when it had no chance of happening, but then four years later calls timeout because he sees Ohio state's about the fake punt. And that kind of showed that he's, he has improved as a game manager as a, he's not just a good recruiter and developer. He's a, good X's and O's head coach. And he's certainly a good motivator. I do think like the, the point you guys talked about before as to teed it up, I think it's a, I don't want to say it's a mood point, but like looking at through that other stuff, like USC through the prism of how you did it, it's a different era now where like if they do stumble to Tennessee or to Kentucky or to South Carolina, it's the equivalent of like maybe them toe hooking one on the driving range into the parking lot. They're still probably, you know, unless they stumble twice, they're still going to probably have to get, you know, you're going to have to beat them in the playoff. Right. And that's the yeah. part where, you know, is it, uh, and again, last year, Ohio State had them on the ropes and then couldn't finish it. But like, you know, I go back to, and I think we were all at this game. It was at the Rose Bowl. It was against Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl semifinal. It felt a lot, honestly, like the Ohio State game in terms of like, you're against a team with a lot of firepower. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the playoff, you know, Alabama certainly could win those games in the latter half, maybe not in the Jake or Co- Jacob Coker earlier stage, but when they had all these receivers and everything else, I think that's the part will be interesting. When somebody else looks like they can put up, you know, 40 points, is it, you know, it, 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 without Stetson Bennett, maybe is the new quarterback, is it going to be enough to win that kind of game, you know, that to me, that's my biggest question mark, I guess. And new offensive coordinator, um, which I don't think Bobo is going to change much from Munkin. The offense, I think, is going to look a little bit more wide open, but just reacting to the personnel uh, because of Dominic Lovett, the receiver transfer they got from Missouri, who's more of a slot guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the, the Tennessee game is the interesting one. What if, and, and there's a four team playoff now, USC didn't have that. Um, and Alabama didn't have that when they were trying to three people. What if Georgia loses to Tennessee? That's their only loss, but Tennessee doesn't lose more than one other game. And Georgia doesn't make the sec championship. I think a one loss Georgia that then and goes wins the sec championship is going to get in the 14 playoff. I kind of think that on a selection committee that has humans on it, if there is a way they can get the two time yeah. defending champ in the playoff, to try and three-peat, I think they will do it. You're right. It is human nature, right? That's I, I think Stu and I would agree absolutely. You're right. 
Also, we should point out, Seth, on this podcast last week, we had David Oven on, and we started talking about around the SEC. And I found out that both Bruce and David think that Kentucky could be like this year's TCU. So if you're looking for a, for a sneak-up game, th- there it is. Yeah, I, I didn't mention them earlier, um, and I felt bad about that when I remembered that. They're, they're just kind of – but I think that's because I've – covered this league so long in this division in this last year of the sec East, maybe it would be appropriate that Kentucky finally wins it, but they've always been that team that's yep. there. And then November just can't, can't do it. Like I, they haven't beaten Georgia since I think 2009. Um, you know, but I mean, yeah, Liam Cohen comes back as the OC Devin Leary is new quarterback. I mean, you know, maybe it happens. Uh, I just kind of got to see it happen. I'm with you on that one. All right, Seth, we appreciate you joining us. Excited for the season. I mean, especially as you were kind of outlining the the path to, I'm just sitting there thinking, it was like, man, if Tennessee were to to run the table in the regular season, um, coming off what they did last year, I think a lot of us would have to really rethink what we think of Josh Heupel as a, as a hire from, from what he has turned out to be is way, way uh, outperformed what most people have thought in even to this point. So um excited for this so when does when is the first day of of camp for the dogs i don't know they haven't officially told us but uh my kids first day of school down here is august 2nd and it's usually around then so august 2nd yeah yeah i i grew up in uh in the north quote unquote maryland's south of the mason dixon line but nobody down here believes me but um yeah we always went to school after labor day but down here it's august yeah I think most of the country, if you're not playing a week zero game, I think almost everybody will open on practice on August 4th, Friday, August 4th or Saturday, August 5th. So you have a couple of days to get your school, you know, supplies up and running everything. Yep. And then, and then, and then preseason drills begin. So, yep. All it's, right. It's well, guys, that we're going to talk about football. I'm, I'm happy for that. Knock on wood. Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much, Seth. You guys, you know, uh, obviously Georgia is going to be one of these stories this year. You should, of course, follow Seth for all your Georgia coverage. And thanks again for your time. Thanks, guys. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's mailbag time, Bruce, and this is going to be a hybrid mailbag of questions that I I put out the call for on Twitter and a question we got through the mailbag email address, theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Like I said earlier, we are eager to start thinking about the 2023 season. So this first one comes from Daniel Volpe. 
If Penn State was in any other Power 5 division or conference, would they be favored to win any of those this year? I would say there was one I think they would be favored to win. And, and that is that? the Big 12. Yep, I was. that's the same one I was going to say. Not that the Big 12 is bad by any means, but there's just a lack of a surefire. I mean, the fact that Texas was picked to win it at Media Days, despite a lot of question marks, tells me it's kind of open for the taking. I just think, you know, Penn State has some eye-popping talent scattered on its roster on both sides of the ball. Certainly at running back, I think Drew Aller is going to, from everything I've heard, should live up to the hype, which is a lot. They obviously have the best left tackle in college football, or what we think is the best left tackle. Um, They have good corners, some big playmakers in the front seven. I think that they are – I think they're a better on paper team than Texas. They've had more – honestly, Franklin's had more success uh, leading a team than Sark has at this point. I think if they were in the Big 12, I think they would be. I don't feel as confident you know, if they would be over the Pac-12, just because, again, we talked about all the, the quarterbacks back and all the offensive firepower. Um, you know, I, I'll i be honest. If they were in the ACC and Garrett Riley was not, I think Garrett Riley to me is a big difference for me with Clemson. I would not have as much confidence. Like, I could see Clemson maybe as a playoff team with a combination of Garrett Riley and Kate Klubnick. If it was what they had last year, I don't know if I would see Clemson as a team that could would be a playoff team. I just but what about Florida State? You know, wouldn't if you I were doing ACC team, media? Yeah, I I think I don't necessarily think Florida State. To me, Florida State is they have a more experienced quarterback than than uh, Penn State. But I'm not sure. I see a huge. I'm not that bullish on Florida State. Like I don't think Florida State is a top four team. I think they're a top ten team. But I don't, I'm not as sold on them. The way I look at it is this Penn State is not Maryland or Rutgers, where it's like, oh, as long as they're stuck in that division, what, what chance do they have? It's Penn State. They recruit at a very high level. We think this is a very talented team. They, can, ask, can, ask they can just go and beat Ohio State and or Michigan. Let me ask you a question circling back to your thoughts on Florida State. Like, do you think Florida State is a top four team right now? Top four, no. Um, I'd have to look back on what I did after the spring, but definitely top 10. Yeah. Uh, I think I that LSU-Florida State game is going to be a real measuring stick kind of game. Like, I don't know. I mean, they're a team that lost that, that had that, you know, lost three close games in a row. But, like, they did beat LSU – in their second game last year. But beyond that, I'm like, I'm not sure what I looked at and was like, oh yeah, they're like ready to, and maybe they will make a playoff run, but like, I don't know who else they beat last year. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, you know, it was a kind of a, I don't know. No, you're, you're not, you're not wrong about that. I think that, you know, um, I think that, I think that to his credit, Mike Norvell has done a great job upgrading their talent in large, not in large part, but in quite a bit through the transfer portal. Jared Verse, you know, preseason first team All-American was Johnny the face of that last year. He went out and got a bunch of transfer tight ends and offensive linemen who were very experienced. 
Obviously, we like Jordan Travis. I had them ninth in my preseason. The difference between you and me is I'm just not that high on Clemson. I have them 16th. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, I didn't I, know that. No, I just don't think. So you're not a. Uh, so let me ask you this: You're not a big believer in Cade Klubnik. It's not really about that. I think Cade Klubnik could be good. I don't think he has. He doesn't have anywhere near the receivers around him that they did when it was Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. Certainly, I like Will Shipley. I don't think he is Travis Etienne. They should be really good on defense again. But no, I mean, now, if Garrett Riley comes in and turns that offense into an absolute juggernaut, then yeah, absolutely. But I don't think the – an offensive line also I'm not that high on. I just – They haven't had a good back. offense. They have not had a good offense. They won in spite of their offensive line, it seemed like. For yeah. A long time. They haven't had like – it's not like they've been rolling out NFL players in the O-line. Well, can they win in spite of the offensive line? So you're thinking they can win in spite of the offensive line because they have Clay – because uh, they have Cade Klopnik, Will Shipley, and Garrett Riley. And they have really good linebackers. I mean, they have players on defense. They have young talent in the front seven. They have good linebackers. I think Garrett Riley's really good. I think the two guys who I think are going to benefit the most, well, besides Dabo, certainly, from Garrett Riley is Cade Klopnik and Will Shipley. I think it'll be a huge – like, I was tempted to take Will Shipley in my Heisman draft. Because I just, I, you know, I'm sold at what, um, what Riley's able to do. Like his version, I don't, you know, it's not fair to necessarily lump the, all the RA guys together. But the stuff he got run game wise from his time at App State is a good wrinkle. Like I watched, you know, I got to see them at TCU. And they, now granted, Max Duggan was a really good running quarterback. It was almost like at times people in the Big 12 thought he was a single wing quarterback the way he played. But, you know, I think they're – I think they're going to be a really interesting team to watch because, you know, Grace and I did that story about how the old Clemson offense got so stale, you know, so fast. And I do think that this is a change. I'm interested to see – you know, like you said, you have them 16th. I was surprised. You might be right. I mean, if – because I feel like that was probably around where I would have had them if they didn't make an OC change. So yeah, and they could be somewhere between playoff and 16. Um, look back at Clemson last season, okay? I'm going to rattle it off. Who was – we know, like, those losses, like getting crushed by Notre Dame, really getting bullied by Notre Dame, losing to South Carolina, and then just getting physically dominated by Tennessee, even though Tennessee was playing without Hendon Hooker and Jalen Hyatt. Like, it wasn't their, their A team necessarily. It kind of sticks with me. Now mm-hmm. I'm looking and saying, okay, well, who, who, who did they beat, right? Because they did win 11 games. All right, Wake Forest, 51-45 in double overtime. NC State, 30-20. to That was when they still had Devin Leary. That's a good uh, one. That's a good Florida, one. They beat Florida State, 34-28. They beat Syracuse game, if you remember, went right down to the wire. Those, those are probably – and then they did handle mightily UNC in the bowl game with Drake May. So it wasn't like – that was bad necessarily, but for whatever reason, maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Then the Nate, not just the losses, but the nature of those three losses kind of really sticks with me as a bit of an indictment of where Clemson is right now. From talking, from listening to you talk over the last month, there's two things that I think stick in your craw most. You don't like Devin Leary and you don't like Dabo Sweeney. 
Okay. So let's get to our next question. I don't like is, is a really harsh way to put it. I mean, we're talking just I'm, about football, football aptitude or talent here. All right. Next question. Staying in the Big Ten East. All right. Actually, I wasn't aware of this until this this um, Scott here brought this up. But Jim Nagy, the Senior Bowl, he runs the Senior Bowl, right? That's his title. No. Tweet from July 14th. Can't recall when one program produced seven offensive line prospects in the same class who got an opportunity, drafted or undrafted, free agent to play in the NFL. But there's a very good chance that happens this year at Michigan. All seven will appear on the 2024 Senior Bowl watch list to be released next month. That's Trevor Keegan, Ladarius Henderson, two Stanford transfers, Drake Nugent and Miles Hinton, Trent A. Jones, Zach Zinter, and Carson Barnhart. Seven guys. So, well, he asks, Scott asks, given all they could lose after this season, J.J. McCarthy, Blake Corum, Dylan Edwards, up to seven offensive line prospects, according to Jim Navy, is this the biggest national championship or bust season in Michigan history? Whenever somebody says Michigan history, like I have to kind of limit it to my lifetime or my time covering the sport. Maybe there was a huge, uh, you know, 1940s team that had a national championship or bust. Um, actually, I would say it's not that different. I would say this is very similar to the season, and I hate to bring this up because it's a very sore subject for Michigan fans, but coming off the 06 season where they lost the 1-2 game to Ohio State but still brought back Chad Henney, Mike Hart, uh, Mario, I believe Mario Manningham, yeah. And then they lost to Appalachian State in the first game. But that felt like a team that I believe they started preseason number three that was like a core group of players that they had one year left with. What does it feel like to you? Um, look, I think Jim is one of the smartest football people I know of, you know, his sense of like, you know, who's really good. And, you know, he studies this at a different level. Um, I think he's right. Cause you had the back-to-back Joe Moore award uh, groups. You add, you know, some really good players from the PAC 12. I mean, I think I remember our former colleague, Andy Staples, doing a story on a 16-year-old Ladarius when he was a you know young offensive lineman there, and he's blossomed into to be an even better player. I think the, the question for them going forward, because like they're recruiting now better than they had a few years ago. So, look, we've seen people kind of reload through the portal. Um, the, I think the biggest question is going to be, can they take the next step forward, Right. I mean, this is a really, really strong team with a lot of veteran leadership. But how does Jim Harbaugh manage it, right? You know, like, I think I think that's going to be the, 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 the most, um, the thing I want to watch is, like, they really haven't had stumbles in the regular season, you know? I mean, last year they mowed everybody down. They had some couple of tight games. And then when Blake Corum got hurt, you know, I think that really – it kind of changed a little of how how that you know he was such a such a factor for them that one two punch but i still think they're going to do what michigan has shown that they've done the last couple of years the question ultimately i think is how does jim harbaugh manage it do they have enough firepower on the outside to win the you know the shootout game when they need to do it uh, if or if they're or if they're behind in the second half um everything else i think he knows his blueprint i think he's found 
I think he's kind of, I think, I think the program, it's weird to say it, but I think it, it, it really landed, it grew into its identity. I don't think it found its identity. I just think it's grown into it. And that's why I think they're different. Jordan Ray Hart, which of the new big 12 teams, that would be BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF has the best chance at making a surprise run to the conference title game. I did say earlier that I think it's a pretty wide open conference. Do you feel like one of those four could make it to Arlington? Man, um, I don't, Process like, of elimination. I don't you, think it's going to be Houston. And I don't think it's going to be Cincinnati, which people may be like, wait, but they're the team that just made the playoff. Uh, coaching the, change. And they've just really lost everybody. They haven't lost everybody. Cincinnati has two studs on their D line who I think are dominant players. I would say they've lost everybody and they have playmakers on defense. Um, but I, I would say I'm, I, I want to see what UCF looks like in the, in the big 12. John Rice Plumley is, is really dynamic. And we saw, you know, people remember in the LSU ran over everybody um, in 2019, but when Rich Rodder was running the offense with him, man, he gave LSU fits that one Saturday night, and um, they have speed around him. I think Gus will do a really good job with him. I think they're asleep. I think they're a sleeper. The other team, I I have, don't have a great feel for yet. I I talked to um, Keaton Slobus for a while at, in Dallas last or two weeks ago. And I know Aaron Roderick, who's a really good OC, is very excited by what he saw there. And I feel like they're a team that kind of similar to where Kalani Satake came from with Kyle Whittingham. They're a team who's going to be really physical. And I think they're going to probably surprise some, some Big 12 teams. I don't know if anybody of this group is going to be better than an eight-win team because I just think they're going to be facing – better competition on a week in week out basis than what, you know, certainly what they saw in the AAC or, you know, what BYU was seeing in the second half of the season. So if I had to guess, I would say UCF. Yeah. I mean, if I were picking just one, it would be UCF, but even there, you know, UCF was a nine and five team last season playing in the AAC. They did beat Tulane at Tulane late in the season, but then lost lost their offense. Lost their best offensive lineman to Miami, Matt Lee, who's there, who's there kind of who's a legit NFL guy, was their center. I just think that I don't know. If I, have I think one. that any, you know, we've seen in the past when TCU went from Mountain West to the Big 12, when Utah went from Mountain West to uh, to Big 12, like there was an adjustment period. They they went from winning a lot of games in their old conference to really struggling the first couple of years. They need to I remember Kyle Whittingham saying often during that time, like it takes a little time to build up depth to be in a power five conference. So the combination of that, and then I just think bad timing. What if BYU was going into the big 12 with the Zach Wilson team or Cincinnati was going in like Cincinnati, the year they went to the playoff with that team, with all those draft picks, I would absolutely say it could make the big 12 championship game. But I think, I don't think that this team is going to be that team. So I'd be surprised. I would, I just, not to be a downer, but I'd be very surprised if any of the new teams is in the Big 12 title game. That being said, I believe I picked TCU to finish tied for last in the Big 12 last year. Sue, so, so what do I really know? To underscore your points, Stu, on the transition, I just looked up Gary Patterson's first two seasons in the Big 12. 
his combined record in Big 12 play, 6-12. and 12. Now, year three, they finished number three in the country. There you go. I mean, I'm not. I think any of those teams has a chance to be good down the down down the road, but I don't know about right off the bat. Hey, real quick, Bruce, we got to go, so I don't really want to get into a long discussion about this. But Carrie from Lawrenceville, Georgia, wrote into the email, and it's just a stat that blows me away. It's about Matt Rule. I haven't followed Matt Rule's career that closely at Baylor or Temple or Nebraska. However, based on media reaction, I assumed Rule's hire at Nebraska was a huge get. I just saw an article that shows Rule's record against top twenty-five competition is two and 16 and those two wins came at temple and i'm like how can that be possible the guy went to a new year six bowl at baylor so i looked it up and sure enough he never beat a top 25 team at baylor does this give you any pause to be like oh maybe he's not necessarily the guy to lead nebraska to glory because you're gonna play a lot of top 25 teams in the big 10 yeah um does it give me pause you know what gives me pause scott frost gives me pause because I love that hire. It didn't work out. And I really like the Matt Rule hire at Nebraska. And I think the this job that Matt Rule took over in some ways is harder than what Scott Frost had. Because Scott Frost was dealing with the Western Division, you know, reality in the Big Ten. Whereas Matt Rule is going to get USC and UCLA, especially USC. But UCLA is not going to be easy for them either. And there's you know you're you're going to deal probably with the heavyweights of the big 10 east now more and so i just think it's like the balance is a little more tilted where those those western teams what were the west they're it's going to be a little harder for them you know you're adding usc which is going to be you know every bit as talented and dangerous as as ohio state and michigan and you're adding ucla which i feel like right now is every bit as good as anybody else who's been in the West at this point. So I th- I think Matt Rule is a really good hire, and I think that was a huge get for them because I thought he did an amazing job at Baylor. He did a good job at Temple. You know, they were two wins his first year, and then they were like double-digit wins. But you and I both know how bad of a situation Baylor was. Like, that's not a win, just a wins and losses thing. That was a toxic place and he got the stink off of Baylor, I felt like. You know, I just go back to this. I remember being at Big 12 Media's Jim, Jim Grove, who you and I both, I think, respect, you know, a lot. Um, he went in there as the guy who was trying to, you know, kind of steady the ship. And I felt like it was very – the way that thing was going, I felt like it was, it was not easy – it was very easy to step in it one way or the other, because you were getting so many questions about certain things that were off the field. And, you know, Jim Grove, you know, took some shots. And I think when Matt Rule got there, I was just so impressed. I know it didn't work out at all in the NFL, but he did an amazing job. The fact that they even got him to go to Waco at that time, as opposed to he could have been the head coach at Oregon, he decided to go to Baylor and it worked out great. And look, I think he deserves a lot of credit for the team that, you know, Dave Aranda had, two years ago because it was still mostly his guys. So good hire for Nebraska. Tough job. I agree. Uh, so again, we're in on field. We're trying to get back into on field mode. As soon as I say that there'll be some huge development in the PAC 12 thing finally. And if so, we will talk about it next time, but if not send your questions, the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.